book. We're going to have a look at Mark chapter 10, and just particularly the, the section there about the, the rich young man that comes to the Lord. So this is reading from Mark chapter 10, from verse, uh, let's say from verse 17. And as Jesus was going forth into the way, there ran one to him, and kneeled to him, and asked him, Good Master, what shall I do, that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, even God. Thou knowest the commandments, Do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these things have I observed from my youth. And Jesus, looking upon him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. But his countenance fell at the saying, and he went away sorrowful, for he was one that had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about, and said unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answereth again, and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through an eagle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished exceedingly, saying unto him, Then who can be saved? Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God for all things are possible with God. So then, this this young man, I say young man, in fact here in, in the record in Mark it uh, doesn't actually say that, it just says that someone came running to him. It's in Matthew 19 that we're told it was a young man, and in Luke 18, 18, we're told that he was a, a ruler. So he was a young man who was wealthy, who was a ruler. And he comes running to Jesus, in the way, that is, in a public place. Now, he was running. Now, if you were anybody in first century Middle Eastern society, you did not run in public. Uh, a wealthy person, a ruler, a leader, was not to run in public. And that, incidentally, is the powerful thing in the story of the, the parable of, the, good, of the, uh, the prodigal son, that the father runs out to meet the returning son. The old man running in the street in the eyes of others was a most unusual thing and it was an indication of the the extraordinary nature of his desire to welcome the prodigal home but anyway here in our context this this young man this wealthy man this ruler is running in public and right in front of everybody in a public place in the way we're told that he kneels before Jesus. Now, that was a pretty strong thing to do. This is a public sign to everybody that he accepted Jesus as Lord. And he addresses him as Master, Good Master. And he assumes that this Good Master is able to explain to him what he must do to inherit eternal life. And then you know how the story goes on. Jesus tells him what he has to do. And then there's an anticlimax in the story. It's not the expected outcome. This man is presented to us in the start of the, uh, this little account as really a pretty good believer with a genuineness about him. And even the way he goes away at the end of it, really, really sad and crestfallen because he, uh, he's not got the answer he wanted. 
uh, it sort of indicates a kind of sincerity about the guy. So then, the story sets him up as really, you know, quite a good guy uh, in terms of his faith. That he really did accept Jesus as, as, as master uh, and kneels before him. And then, as I say, there is in the story, in its structure, a kind of an anticlimax because this is not the expected outcome. All this devotion is displayed, but then he goes away. Completely crestfallen, this anticlimax because of one thing, and that is his attitude to wealth. And I, I think the, the story is set up like that uh, as literature, I mean, in its structure, to have this uh, very positive introduction and then this, this anticlimax at the end to show us how everything else can be in order, but our attitude to wealth in many cases. It can make all that other devotion meaningless. And I think, as I say, the structure of the account is to show us how much hinged, in this man's case, on his attitude to wealth. And so straight away, I mean, there's a, a huge lesson to us there, right away, that our attitude to wealth can be crucial. Why I say can be is because I accept that each person has got a different, uh, a different cross to carry, has maybe got different issues to engage with. And Jesus did not tell every wealthy person to sell all they have and give to the poor. And it's quite clear, both from the Gospels and from the later New Testament, that there were a number of wealthy people in the early church who there's no record that they actually did sell all that they had and, and gave to the poor. Uh, the implication is that they used what they had wisely in the Lord's service. <clears throat> so it maybe was a specific command for this man. Maybe he needed to, to get rid of it all so that he could be in God's kingdom. But uh, there's another, another take on all that which we'll come to a bit later. Anyway, he says, verse uh, 17, Master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, if he's rich and young, you could assume that he's, he's got his wealth by inheritance. So he's inherited all this, and now he says, and, uh, and what can I do to inherit eternal life? I've inherited everything else. What can I, how can I inherit eternal life? Now, the Lord Jesus had actually spoken about this in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, it's talked about the poor, the meek, the humble, for they shall inherit the earth, the kingdom of God on earth. So if the man had actually thought through what was the basic teaching of Jesus, uh, there in the Sermon on the Mount, and his sort of manifesto of his kingdom then he actually would have known the answer. But he, like us, he hadn't thought through the implication of some of the most basic, simple statements of the Lord Jesus. Now, if he was that committed to the Lord Jesus, it seems to me that he would have heard the essence of the Sermon on the Mount, that the, the meek and the humble and the poor will inherit the earth. And he comes running to Jesus and says, well, how, how can I get this inheritance? What can I do? Well, you know, the answer was, be poor and be humble. Well, that's, that's pretty clear. Now, he may be figured that money can get everything, and in a strange way, the Lord is almost saying that the use of wealth and inheriting eternity are, in fact, related. 
but he's also saying, I think, that uh, ultimately goodness and acceptance with God doesn't come from any sort of work of, uh, of obedience. We'll come to that um, now, but in, in verse 18. Um, Jesus, when he says, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life, Jesus doesn't uh, start up with, uh, with a simple answer, say, well, keep, keep commandments, uh, you know, six to ten kind of thing. He attacks the terms of the question, and he does this. This is typical of him, really. He, he says, why do you call me good? There's only one good, and, and that's God. Now, in Matthew we read that the young man comes to Jesus and says, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus, as I say, attacks the terms of the question and uh, says that actually only God alone is good. Now, the Lord Jesus also said, which of you convinces me of sin? He knew full well that he was sinless, he had not sinned. And yet he could also say that he was not good in the full sense, as God alone is good. So I don't think the goodness he's referring to here is, if you like, a moral issue, that he's talking about moral perfection. I think he's talking about perfection in the sense that only God, God alone, uh, had perfection and fullness and wholeness in himself as an intrinsic part of him. Um, it was the fullness of the Father which filled the Lord Jesus. And I, I think the Lord Jesus is bringing this point out that he is not good in the sense of being complete uh, in the same way as God is because only God is like that. And I think this is actually the nub of the whole incident. But this young man comes and says, so what good thing must I do, good master, so that I can be perfect? He says, what do I lack? Matthew 19 verse 20, what lack I yet? In other words, he's aiming for this thing called perfection, and he's saying, well, what do I lack? And then Jesus says in verse 21, uh, back here to Mark, Mark 10 verse 21 Jesus said one thing you lack go and sell what you have, give to the poor and come and follow me so then th there's an idea of, of sort of playing on this that uh, the man lacked nothing materially but he lacked completeness he lacked treasure in heaven so then, the man had asked uh, about goodness and what he had to do, it seems, to be perfect. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 19:21, If you will be perfect or complete, then sell what you have, give to the poor, come follow me. So that, as I say, shows that the young man was really on about being complete, if you will be perfect or complete, then sell what you have and give to the poor. So then the Lord understood the man correctly, that this guy wanted to be perfect. He felt that he might just be lacking something in his quest for perfection, and so he asked, what is that? Now, when Jesus therefore says to him, look, none of us are good, not even I am 
holy, good and perfect and complete in myself, because only God is. See, that's why Jesus said that to start with. That's why he didn't say to him, oh, you want to be perfect? Well, here's a few commandments to keep Sonny Jim. Uh, no, he doesn't say that at all. He starts off by saying what apparently would, would appear out of context. He starts off by saying, look, uh, look, buddy, none of us are good, not even I as a son of God am completely good. It's only with God that there is completeness and wholeness intrinsically, as it were, of himself and in himself. So in what sense then was Jesus perfect with the Father? Well, it was not only because he did all the commandments, because he did all the right things. It was because of the nature of his relationship with the Father, which is what the Father chose to give him. So even in the relationship between Father and Son, there was an element of grace. It was not all about perfect obedience, even though Jesus was perfectly obedient. You know, which of you convinces me of sin? Um, yet he was not ultimately good in the sense that the Father is ultimately and only good. So then this guy, this young man, he was a perfectionist. Now, there is no such thing as a perfectionist. People say, oh, you know, she's a perfectionist. Well, no, she's not. She's just, <laughs> she's just up herself. <laughs> because nobody is able of getting anywhere near being a, perfection, a perfectionist in the true sense of it. It's just a, an arrogant illusion. And the idea of being a perfectionist, whereby I must do everything nicely and rightly and do up my top button and get my perfect uh, tie, you know, sort of perfectly lined up and all the rest of it, this is all just an arrogant illusion. That's all it is. Perfection is not possible, because in that sense, now I'm not talking about moral perfection, I, I mean per a perfect thing just isn't there because it is only there in, in God. Even the Lord Jesus had to say that. So then, there is however a strong human tendency to perfectionism. I must do it right. I must get it right. Not just in terms of physical appearance, but in all kinds of petty ways. Even even people like myself who might sort of physically appear not to be a perfectionist but quite the other way, um, whatever the other way is, but anyway, uh, it, no, even I, and even you, in some ways, in some ways, we are very fastidious. We are, in our own petty little ways, perfectionists. Just, it may be in hidden ways, but all the same we are. And this is the same strand, if you like, in the human condition, in human nature, as some would put it, that does not want to trust in grace, that wants to do it all ourselves, that wants to have our own works, our own words, uh, as the definition of, of obedience and righteousness and salvation, whereby, uh, unfortunately, we are failing completely to see that salvation is by faith, that it might be by grace. And so this man was the same. He wanted to have his list of things he had to do. And Jesus says that. <laughs> Not even I am good. What good things shall I do? That I might be good? That I might inherit eternal life? No. Look, I, I'm not good. Uh, not at all. Um, only God is. And even if you're perfectly obedient, as Jesus was, you are still not going to be good just by that obedience. That, that's, that's the whole point. 
It's not a discouragement to righteousness. It's rather an encouragement in the depth and the nature of God's grace. So then we, we can get the impression, and it's a wrong impression, that Jesus was saying to this man, look here, if, if you don't sell all you have and give to the poor, you can't have a relationship with me. You're over and done. You're finished. Not at all. What Jesus is saying to him is, look, you, know, you got some uh, money behind you and wealth and all that. If you want to be perfect, well, get rid of all that and give to the poor. And come and take up your cross and follow me. And the man walks away, and it's so tragic. And he walks away because he's a perfectionist, because he, he can't do it. He can't steal himself to do it. He can't be that good uh, to, to sell all he has and give to the poor. But, of course, the reaction he should have had is, Lord, oh, okay, oh, okay, I get it. I can't be good, can I? That's what you just told me at the start of your, your answer. Now, I can't uh, be good in the sense that God's good no matter what I do. No, okay. Um, oh, Lord, you know what? I, I, I just can't do that. I don't have the, the steel in my, in my character to do that, to, to sell all I've got and give, give to the poor. I'm sorry, Lord, I can't do it. Okay. But uh, you love me, don't you? Yes. And I love you. Um, but I'm weak on this point, and so I throw myself upon your grace. Will you accept me? Sure. But he couldn't do that. He couldn't do that. And so he walks away from Jesus in sorrow, in tears. Now, wait a minute. This is a picture out of the other pictures uh, that Jesus has told about the Day of Judgment. How the wicked will be crying, will be sorrowful, to put it mildly, and will walk away from the presence of Jesus in an awful sorrow. And this man is living out, living out his own rejection. He is rejecting himself. Now, out of the negative, a wonderful positive comes, that the only people who will be rejected the Day of Judgment are those who walk away themselves and say, I do not want to be here. Those who love his appearing, all those that love his appearing, and of course that, that is more than just a passing emotion, uh, those that truly love his appearing, that believe in his grace, will be there, and that's you and me tonight. But this man will not be there, or at that time rejected himself from, from being in God's kingdom, because he just couldn't accept the, the magnitude of what Jesus was saying. That you cannot be perfect. You are not ultimately good. I mean, by perfect, I, you know, I don't mean in a moral, sinless sense. I mean in the sense of total completion, total, total fullness. Um, you can't be that. Even I'm not like that. It all depends upon how God, by his grace, chooses to see us. And, uh, okay, you can't get yourself to sell all you have and give to the poor. Look, that's okay. If you want to be perfect, that's what you've got to do. But, you know, you can't be, but that's all right. I'll accept you. Now, this is so hard, isn't it? For us to believe in grace. That God's grace is sufficient for me. Really, this is what Paul had to be taught, thought in the flesh, three times, hit uh, with, with these things. God kept on trying to teach him, and you know, God keeps on trying to teach you and me, that we are not saved by ourselves. That he is our saviour in Jesus. The whole basic, simple gospel of grace which is so simple, 
that if you believe you will be forgiven and saved, it's just too hard for us to believe because we've got this hankering, a terribly strong hankering, to trust in ourselves and in human strength. All that said, all that said about the danger of perfectionism and, and all that, of course the Lord is bringing out a, a point, and, and the whole uh, story, the whole account does bring out a very powerful point that wealth for this man and his attitude to it was his stumbling block. In fact, what I said is that it wasn't just a, a lack of generosity that was his stumbling block, it was more fundamentally his desire to be perfect, his desire to be a perfectionist, his desire to be able to say, yes, that was a command, the one about uh, generosity or whatever, given to the poor, and I ticked that box and I did it. It was actually that, more than a lack of generosity in itself, which, which was his stumbling block. But all the same, I mean, the Lord Jesus does teach in Matthew 13:44 that we should sell what we have and turn it into treasure in heaven. And quite clearly he, he's making the point that spiritual wealth and material wealth are opposites, he says, uh, here in, in verse 21. Sell what you have and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. It's as if he's saying, well, you've got the treasure on earth at the moment, you give it to the poor, and the treasure goes up to, gets on an elevator and goes up to heaven, and it's there waiting for you, uh, and will be given to you when the Lord comes back um, at, at, the, at the judgment. So he does seem to be saying, you know, on a sort of simpler level, that by giving to the poor, you are transferring your wealth from earth to, to heaven. I mean, that's what he's saying. Um, what, what am I lacking, the man says. Well, he was actually lacking everything. He had everything materially, he lacked nothing, but he said, what lack I yet? Well, he lacked not having it. It's a big sort of uh, wordplay there on the idea of lacking. He lacked nothing, and yet Jesus says, you're lacking. You're lacking one thing, and that's to get rid of it all. Um, so it's a pretty powerful point, really, that, that he's making. And of course, we we tend to think that no, no, it's all. Let's relativise all this. Um, you know, it, he doesn't really mean this. Um, well, I at at the, at the least I can have a certain amount of material wealth, and also look forward to being in God's kingdom. And uh, I'll be quite honest with you, I have not sold all that I have and given to the poor. I haven't. I, I don't claim that, I've never claimed that and I suspect that most of you hearing my words have also not done that either and we can rationalise it and relativise it but I, and all the, the Bible teaching, or the Lord's teaching anyway, about wealth, I, I'm uncomfortable with and instead of trying to rationalise it and say yeah, well that was in those days or well, that was just Jesus talking to certain people or whatever um, I, I just say, look that's what it says. It takes no feat of uh, sort of literary analysis or looking at Hebrew, Greek, or whatever language you want to look at to, to make the plain meaning of language any other. Jesus is saying, get rid of your, your material wealth because you can't have spiritual wealth and material wealth. That's what he's saying. He goes on to say that uh, it's like a camel 
uh, getting into the, the, the needle gate, the very small gate, it's got to bend down on its knees, humble itself and get rid of all of the wealth that's, that's stacked on top of it before it can just about squeeze through the gate into the kingdom. And you know, he goes on to say quite clearly, it's very hard for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God, and yet we live in a society where everybody wants to be rich. Uh, uh, what he says is quite plain and as I say, I, I'm fully aware of all the attempts to rationalise all this uh, try and explain it away it's got as much credibility as the, the gay Christian movement as far as I'm concerned that they will look at clear Bible teaching uh, condemning homosexual behaviour and turn it around and say yeah, it's not talking about that at all uh, yeah, you, you can twist the Bible to make it mean what you want and to get out of uh, awkward uh, corners and scrapes you get into in, in your life decisions. As far as I'm concerned, the Bible teaching about money and wealth is not at all difficult. It's quite clear. But I'll be the first to say, and I do not live up to it. And I, I actually know very few people who do. Um, so what's, what's the answer to be? It's a bit like, be ye therefore perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, we're not. And dare I say it, we almost cannot be. I say almost. Almost cannot be. Um, I think the whole thing is there to humble us. So that we are thinking a bit like that rich man who we've just, uh, just encountered in, in the Gospel of Mark here, chapter 10. And we think, yeah, that's what the fullness of life in Christ requires me to do. But... I, I'm sorry, I can't do it, Lord. I am just not strong enough. And so, Lord, I believe that you love me, even though I'm weak on this point, and I throw myself upon your grace. Please accept me. And that's why I think there are some commandments in the Bible, in the teaching of Jesus, which are very, very difficult, if not practically almost impossible, to keep. And this is one of them. The whole teaching about wealth is one of them. Um, and so it's really there to throw us upon his grace. And of course, if I and you have thrown ourselves upon God's grace uh, on, in the matter of how we manage our finances and our wealth, the fact that I'm sitting here with a, a car outside and uh, I have a couple of computers sitting here in this, this, this room that I'm in and... Uh, I own this apartment um, well what should I do I just, just read to you what the Bible says you should do is sell what you have and give to the poor that's what he says I'm surrounded where I live here with poor people uh, and so are you if you open your eyes and look for them wherever you are so I'm not doing that and probably neither are you and so therefore I'm throwing myself upon God's grace and as I say don't try and comfort me with any smart interpretation of, of clear Bible teaching it's <laughs> it's a nonsense the teaching of Jesus is, is crystal clear and it's plain and the language is not difficult and the whole thing is not some exegetical kind of nightmare it's quite clear but it is the first back upon his grace and the disciples were pretty amazed they were so immature they had this idea that uh, if you were wealthy, that's because God gave it to you and he's very pleased with you and blessed you. So how could it be? They were shocked when Jesus said, well, actually, it's really hard for the rich people to get into the kingdom. Like, what? How? That's incredible. Now, he, he says, 
chapter 10, verse 23, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom? And then the disciples are amazed. And he says, children. It's as if he really loves them, but they're so poor and they're so sort of simple and they so don't get it. Uh, he says, well, children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter the kingdom? In 23 he said, how hard is it for those who have riches? In 24, how hard is it for those that trust in riches? And I think what he's saying is, if you have riches, you're going to trust in them. And this is the whole problem of riches. There is nothing wrong with wealth in itself, but the problem with it is that it leads you away from faith. That is the problem. And so in 1 Timothy 6, Paul warns them that are rich in this world, and there clearly were such people in the ecclesias that he was writing to, he warns them that are rich in this world that they trust not in uncertain riches but in the living God so to have riches is unfortunately to trust in them that is the problem and it militates against trust in God now you know this and I know this that you have a problem in, in your life and you've got money well the first thing you do it just, it's just natural uh, ok how much does it cost to get out of this it can be in very small thing very small thing car breaks down or whatever what do I do if you really don't have money <laughs> and you know you don't have money and you, you know that you've got no one that's going to stand to stand you whatever it might be then you're going to pray to God immediately and throw yourself upon God you've got money and you think oh yeah well that's a sort of minor inconvenience um, right, okay yeah right how much is that oh that much okay there you go thank you goodbye sir and no thought further about God no need to trust in God because you've got that wealth, it can be, you know, a pretty small sum of money, or it can be big sums of money. Now, we know this. This is clear Bible teaching. It's, it's really so not difficult to understand. But in all this, I just love the patience of the Lord Jesus. And particularly, that this, this guy that comes to Jesus, running to him, is a young man. And Jesus says, you know, you've got to give it all away to the poor, but he also says, um, before that, he, he says, well, you know, these commandments about your relationship to other people, uh, this is what you've got to keep. And the, the, the guy says in verse 20, Master, all these things have I observed from my youth. And you think, but buddy, <laughs> Matthew says you are a young man. And you, the young man says, I've observed all these things from my youth. Like, <laughs> and big deal. You're a young man, and you say, I've observed these things from, from being a young guy. Oh, have you really? Now, if I heard that, I would be turned off by that youthful arrogance. What does it say, 21? And Jesus looked upon him, loved him. He loved him. I, I, I mean, and this is a guy who ultimately was going to walk away from him and say, nah, 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 nah I, I, I can't pack this. I don't want your grace. I want to be perfectionist in my own right. Uh, but also, he loved him. He looked at him, and he loved him. Now, that has all the hallmarks of an eyewitness account. Uh, I'm not saying, of course, it's just an eyewitness account. This is a record inspired by God. But but uh, the person who wrote the Gospel of Mark, it could have been Peter, it doesn't, doesn't matter, but the inspired writer um, noticed that Jesus looked upon him and loved him. There was something that, that stuck in the writer of Mark's mind, uh, the, the, okay, God made him remember it and made him write it down and all that but all the same, on a human level that's what happened 
he looked at this arrogant, sort of well-meaning young guy and saw the good side and loved him. I love that. I think that's just great. Now, that is how God treats you and me, and that is how we should be treating each other. Look at the positive in others, not at the negative. We've all got a negative side. We've all got a Satan side, an adversarial, weak, sinful side. But there's also good in people, even in those who ultimately, as in this case, I think, walk away from the Son of God in their arrogance and in their self-righteousness and in their desire for for self-made perfection and a self-made, you know, fullness, goodness in their own in their own strength. But all the same, God loves them. And uh, if this man is, as I suggested, sort of living out the picture of condemnation, you know, the, the man walking out himself from the presence of Jesus in tears and in sorrow, all his own fault because he chose to do that, um, but all the same, if that is a picture of the rejected of the Day of Judgment, well, Jesus looked at him and loved him. I, I mean, it's a bit like Jesus saying to Judas, Friend, wherefore are you come? Friend, you know, friend. He loved him. I, I perceive that again, a gentleness and a softness in him. And all this comes down to a simple thing, that if you and I are honest, if we're really honest, underneath, underneath, in our weak moments, in our faithless moments, or in the moments of weak faith, there is that fear, shall I be saved? When I come to the Day of Judgment, and I don't think any one of us doubt that we shall come there, will I be saved? Now, we may, you may be like me, and 99%, even 99 point something or other percent of the time, be really genuinely positive that yes, I will be, but there are those moments when we think, what have I done? And who am I? And we are wanted men and wanted women. Uh, I mean, quite rightly, it's quite right that any genuinely self-aware sinful person in the presence of the huge colossal grace of God is going to have those moments of just introspection I should not be there I should be sent to the left hand side I believe I will not be by his grace but you know that's how it is there will be that fear and I know that for some people this fear is crippling for some people this is a large percentage of their lives unfortunately they struggle with this fear and it's to you and all of us I suppose that some percentage of our time I address these reflections that see the gentleness of Jesus how he so loved this guy who even was arrogant and you know God and Jesus really hate arrogance they really hate it. It's quite clear all the way through the Bible. Um, and this guy says, well, for my youth, I, I kept all these commandments. Uh, and he's so, you know, he wants to be perfect, he wants to be good um, in his own strength. And Jesus says, well, you've got to give away absolutely everything. But, you know, even I'm not fully good uh, in that sense. It's all, it's all of God's grace and it's all of our relationship with God that God has chosen with us. Um, you know, and he can't act that and he, he walks away. Um, even with such a person who in some ways is obnoxious uh, and self-righteous all the things that God and Jesus hate he still looks at him and loves him and Mark or Peter whoever it was right in this gospel was struck with that, that look of Jesus uh, and, and the way that Jesus so wants to save so wants to have a relationship 
I mean, if this is how Jesus is, even to those who don't want to be in God's kingdom, don't want to be saved by grace, well, you and I want to be saved by grace. I mean, it's like you can sort of build up some sort of logical game, that if God loved Israel uh, as much as he did, despite all their rebellion and killing of his son, etc., how much more then would he love those who, who have accepted his son, who, who fail and sin and all the rest of it, but who still have accepted his son? So then, we have every reason to be positive, that we will be saved, that we are not good in the ultimate sense, even Jesus was not. And even if we were to be completely perfect in a, in a moral sense, in the sense of never committing a sin, and always committing righteousness, all the same we would not be as fully good as God, because Jesus was like that, and even he wasn't as good as, uh, as God is good and full and complete in himself. But the wonderful message is that God has brought us into existence by his grace, and that he is eager to save us. We who do not deal with wealth as we should, we who, who cannot, it seems, or will not, or whatever, rise up to the, the standard that, that ultimately he would have of us, the seller we have and give to the poor, in the end, he wants us. And all this talk about what is lacking, you know, you're lacking one thing, and the guy's saying, and what am I lacking? And hey, you're lacking one thing, that's, that's to get rid of it all. Uh, all of that is alluding, I think, to Psalm 23, verse 1 of the Septuagint. The Lord is my shepherd, not one thing is lacking to me. In the end, if he is our shepherd and we are his sheep and he's leading us, in the very end, not one thing is lacking to us.